0: Hey everyone, welcome to part two of a special two-part episode of Hell and High Water with Nicole Wallace, the host of Deadline White House on MSNBC, and one of my dearest chums in the known universe. If you happen to have wound up here without having heard part one of the podcast, I strongly recommend that you hit pause now, go back and listen to the first installment, in which Nicole and I talk about Joe Biden and how he's done in the first 11 weeks that he's been in office, About the state of COVID and the amazing series of COVID eulogies that Nicole has been doing for the past year on her show, and the incredibly shocking but not at all surprising metastasizing set of scandals involving New York Governor Andrew Cuomo. If you have done that already, great! Fan fucking tastic! You are ready for part two, in which Nicole and I go deep on the legacy of Donald Trump, the fallout from the insurrection, the attack on the Capitol last week, the start of the Chauvin murder trial in Minneapolis the decision of Major League Baseball to move the All-Star game out of Atlanta, and the wave of voter suppression measures in Georgia and elsewhere that threaten our very democracy, as well as what Nicole has discovered she really misses during the pandemic and what she's eager to recover when things return to normal, whatever the fuck normal means, when this goddamn pandemic ends. I have no idea, friends, what that might be, but I do know this much. Pre-pandemic? Mid-pandemic? Post-pandemic? One thing that is definitely not normal... This Republican Florida congressman and avid hula hoop aficionado, Matt Gates, And it is with Matt Gaetz that we are going to pick up our conversation in part two of Nicole Wallace's triumphal return to hell and high water. Here is Matt Gates in one of the most absolutely incredible interviews I have ever seen on television, talking last week to Tucker Carlson of Fox News. Let's go back to the investigation. You, you say that it was... Uh, that it was or is underway. There was an investigation. What is the basis of that investigation? What is the allegation? That's really not very clear from these news stories. Yeah, again, I only know what I've read in the New York Times. Uh, I can say that actually you and I went to dinner uh, about two years ago. Your wife was there, and I brought a friend of mine. You'll remember her. And she was actually threatened by the FBI, told that if she wouldn't cop to the fact that somehow I was involved in some pay-for-play scheme, uh, that she could face trouble. And so uh, I do believe that there are people at the Department of Justice who are trying to smear me, uh, you know, providing for flights uh, and hotel rooms for people that you're dating who are of legal age is not a crime. Uh, And I'm just troubled that the lack of any sort of legitimate uh, investigation into me would then permute, would then convert into this extortion attempt. I, I, I don't remember the, the woman you're speaking of or the context at all, honestly. <laughs> so there's T- Tucker, <laughs> Tucker Carlson, utterly flummoxed. No, uh, not
1: flummoxed. But- Tucker Carlson, like, please, DOJ, don't call me as a witness. I do not remember the woman that went on yes. a double date with me and my wife and Matt Gates.
0: Yes, I want to be I don't want to be glue about it, but I wonder whether this was the woman with the hula hoop. Right. So uh, so here's I'll just say the following things. One, it is your paramour, your beau, Mike Schmidt. I believe that's a public fact uh, now who broke these stories. Mike just breaks stories left, right and center. And he <laughs> broke these stories on Eight. So kudos to Mike, as always. He's just a fucking ass kicking reporter. And he and this story is astonishing. Number one. Number two, I held forth with some degree of vehemence. And I cited Animal House and a number of other things to say, you know, stoned. Uh, skeevy and stupid is no way to go through Congress, Matt, uh, on your program on Friday. But you, I haven't heard you hold forth on this matter. I'm curious to know what the view of Nicole Wallace is of what we're seeing in this Matt Gates scandal. And then we'll go to some broader topics that it touches on.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, as with Andrew Cuomo, he's entitled to due process, right? So he hasn't been charged with anything. But what we know about the investigation, we know from Mike's reporting in The New York Times, Mike Schmidt and Katie Benner broke this story about a DOJ investigation greenlit by Bill Barr's Justice Department. So just to take that one line from his comment with Tucker, um, no, Bill Barr certainly wasn't trying to smear Donald Trump's bestie. But this investigation is really gross. I mean, I said on my show before our conversation, if you've got kids in the room, you know, give you a second to get them out. So this is a guy that um, the reporting is allegedly had sex with the same 17 year old that his friend, corrupt Seminole County tax collector also had sex with, which is just, the indicted sex the indicted trafficker, indicted I sex believe trafficker. is the, is the right. phrase you're looking for. Right. Yeah. The indicted sex trafficker also had sex with the same 17 year old that Matt Gates allegedly paid for sex with. This story is is really dark and really gross. I think what makes it, you know, like a political car crash that you can't look away from is that Matt Gates is loathed by Democrats and Republicans. And this is sort of this brazen male asshole chip, no offense to your gender, that, you know, after the impeachment, you know, gets on a plane in the middle of a pandemic that he mocked and denied existed and goes to Wyoming to troll Liz Cheney for having the audacity to say what was clear to anyone that recognizes that that direction is up and that direction is down, that Donald Trump incited the Capitol insurrection. So his political karma is sort of coming home to roost in an accelerated pace. But the conduct is really gross. And I think it's implicated, you know, Nancy Pelosi suggested an ethics investigation. If he's showing naked pictures to other members of Congress, I think we are entitled to know who's participating in that. That is part of the sort of misogyny that's under renewed scrutiny in the wake of the Me Too movement.
0: Right. And, you know, I, I sort of feel like part of the reason that Gates is interesting, right, and is that is interesting in this sense, right? He was obviously you said bestie. He obviously, you know elected in donald trump in the year that donald trump got elected in 2016 he's he's the perfect flower of trumpism in a way or am i which i mean a withered you know kind of Flour like flower
1: might be the you, wrong word he's more like mold, yes like, yes well like or milk. the
0: kind of yeah some kind of a parasitic yeah. uh something that like a like a mushroom that grows right. in the mul- in the mulchy dark somewhere <laughs> right. Right? right you know sprouting up you know but but the thing is is that it's like when people ask the question of what happens to a Trumpist party when there is no longer Donald Trump at its head, I think like what you're left with in a Trump party without Donald Trump is you're left with Matt Gates and the Matt Gateses totally. of the world. That's that's like, oh, this is what we're left with here. This is the totally. remnant. This is the the pond scum that's left as, as the residue, the patina of Trump that's all over the Republican Party now. That's part of why this is not just a gross dude. This guy is emblematic of something.
1: Yeah. And I think the way the way the Times, you know, sees it or sought to cover it is this is what happens when Trumpism comes to your locality. This is what it looks like (laughs) at a a, like micro local level. And we don't even know everything that Mr. Greenberg was doing in this office. He and Gates were in there like making fake IDs for what? For whom? Why? So we don't know everything. I think one thing that is sort of a subtlety, and people that cover investigations appreciate it more than I do, is that Greenberg was charged a really long time ago. He's been in the net of federal law enforcement for a really long time. So we don't know what they know, but the Times literally has the receipts, which is like an expression for how far along an investigation is. They literally have the receipts of paying for sex. So it feels like in some ways, at least the Greenberg part, which is the smarmy associate of Gates, and the investigation that sprouted the the investigation into Gates, it seems pretty mature.
0: Yes. And, and you know, you mentioned Matt Gates is one of the people who stood up in the hours after the insurrection and said, you know, this is Black Lives Matter and and started already to kind of build a new big lie on top of the original big lie. Yeah. And is still to this day, someone who hasn't acknowledged that Joe Biden is the rightful president of the United States. and and it, and it takes me back now to the insurrection. And since the insurrection, you've been all over this story, you know, the continued investigations of Who's responsible? The prosecutions, the implications for security at the Capitol, and so on. I mean, this is a rolling story. This is, I mean, if we believe it's a, domest- a domestic terror nine eleven, you know, we didn't stop covering nine eleven a couple of weeks after it happened right. or a month after it happened. So you've been all over it, rightly so. And we saw this attack on the Capitol on a Friday by someone who, on their Facebook, was saying, you know. The apocalypse is nigh and end times are here and decided to do his crazy shit, his crazy suicidal and murderous shit, decided the capital would be the right place to do it. Doesn't take a Mensa member to see the connection between those two things. And it feels like that is yet another reverberation from January 6th on the landscape of horrors that we still are dealing with right now. COVID is one. And the reverberations and aftershocks of January 6th are another. And I wonder how you're processing that and thinking that through.
1: Well, I mean, I hope frame is usually, as you know, 9-11. And after 9-11, imagine if one of the two parties hadn't wanted to get to the bottom of it or make sure it didn't happen again. And and a lot of that was investigative. Some of it was structural. Some of it was fortifying soft targets or softish targets. Capital is a softish target. It is more open than the White House or the Pentagon or the CIA or the FBI. And the fact that you can't acknowledge the attack happened, I mean, the fact that 12 House Republicans didn't want to award the Capitol Police who died. One of them died protecting them, two of them took their own lives because the word insurrection was in the legislation that would give them medals. It tells you everything you need to know about how one party isn't just blocking sort of an investigation, but they're acting in a way that is suspicious. What side are they on? And there shouldn't be two sides of an insurrection. There should be the American side and the insurrectionist side. But Luke Brockwater of the New York Times wrote sort of the definitive piece of reporting and the first piece of reporting about associations between the very same militias who are under scrutiny and being charged every single day with increasingly serious charges and a half a dozen House Republican members. So this is a Republican party that is at best indifferent to the insurrection, at worst complicit. And I think at the physical level that the violence is tied to it, the softness and the vulnerability of the actual building as a target. But the far graver threat is why don't the Republicans, why don't they want to call an insurrection an insurrection? They erected a noose for Mike Pence. The the insurrectionists didn't simply have Democrats in their sights. They wanted to literally, quote, hang Mike Pence.
0: Yeah. And, you know, it's fucking disgusting, the whole thing. But It it leads me to a question that I, you know, the last time we talked, we talked a fair amount about the Nicole Wallace biography, and we talked about, you know, you growing up in Orange County and the path that led you into the Bush administration. And we talked about Sarah Palin and some other things, but I never really asked you a, a question, a direct question that now seems kind of pertinent to this moment when... What this Republican Party has become and the dangers it poses, I would say, and I think you and I agree about this to our functioning civil society and to people's lives in in the context of the national security threats that domestic terrorism and extremism pose is how did you become a Republican in the first place? This party is not your party now, but I'm I'm interested just in in asking you like what was it that attracted you to the Republican Party that made you a Republican, not just a Republican, but one who worked for George W. Bush. What made you a Republican in the first place?
1: So I mean, my moment now is really, you know, almost like repenting for giving any credence. I mean, I I still adore George Bush and what he sought to do and his stewardship of the country after nine eleven, but I think just about everything that happened since has been destructive, not just to the party, but to the country. And so I took note when Lester Holt said when he won an award this week, that both sides -er are is a danger to journalism. And I'm so heartened to hear people say that there aren't two sides of the story when one is actively working to destroy the democracy. I mean, every Republican that repeated the lies hurt the country, they led to an insurrection, which is an attack on the country. So I think the Republican Party in its current incarnation, I'm not talking about Mitt Romney or the few outliers who stand up and say the right thing. I'm talking about the Republican Party structure and its base and its media ecosystem is destructive to the country. I think they are a danger. I think the voter suppression laws are anti-democratic. I think the repeating of the lies, I think the disinformation about COVID, they all damage the country in real time every single day. Working backward, (laughs) um, I applied for a job as a um, sort of exhausted and underpaid local TV reporter in Redding, California, who wanted to make the move to Sacramento with Cruz Bustamante, who was a Democratic state politician, and Bill Leonard, who was a Republican state politician. I interviewed with both of them because I just thought I could help either side tell their story. So I came to politics very independent-minded, and I guess I left politics very independent-minded. The public service piece of it always drew me in. After working for the Bush family, I have a lot of affection for all of them. And after I left the White House, I probably spent the most time with George and Barbara Bush. I spent um, a lot of time in 2016 in Kenny Bunkport. I visited them a few times, and it sort of bookended, I think, my political life, which died that year. I think I said that on set with Lester Holt at the convention that the Republican Party died in the room the night Trump accepted the nomination. And you know, like any loss, you you grieve part of it, but you know, I think I have a brighter flashlight to expose the corruption and expose the hypocrisy. Right. And I plan to, you know, shine it until all the batteries are dead.
0: I mean, Here's the thing about George W. Bush, right? You know, I just I sang a little a little song to, to George W. Bush and how he was different from one big chunk of the Republican Party back when I first met him in 1994. But by the time he became president, in, but let me he let me just president.
1: say let me just say what drew you to him. I was in California when that was the Republican Party. Prop, yeah. Prop 187 was happening when I was working in California Republican politics. And if George Bush hadn't emerged on the scene, my Republican career might have started and stopped in the totally. 90s. So George Bush was sort of a, a different direction than than um, what was his name? Pete. Um,
0: Pete Wilson, Wilson was taking yeah. the
1: Republican Party in the state where I was working in Republican politics.
0: Sure. And, and I, I totally get it. And that's why I, I say flattering things about George W. Bush and I, and I believe him. I, I truly do. It's also the case, though, that when he ran in 2000, part of the reason why he got elected was and why he ran the table and why he beat John McCain in 2000 was that he was a fusion candidate. Right. He was a compassionate conservative by his own by his own styling. And he was definitely on the side of internationalism and humanity when it came to things like immigration. He was also the candidate of the Christian right. I mean, he was the born again evangelicals love George W. Bush. That was part of his power politically was that he fused kind of what we now think of as moderate republicanism together with a lot of movement conservatives who didn't see John McCain as one of their own. Mm-hmm. And the reason I mention it is this. I get the, the career path that led you into to the Bush administration. Did you think of yourself at any point like as a conservative? Be a republican or no
1: no and it reared its head you know in the white house when there were things that cheered conservatives that i didn't feel any joy in the supreme court fights i never worked on any of them not roberts not alito i helped harriet myers a little bit mostly ease out of the appointment but i did believe in the bush family i did believe in jeb bush when i worked for him as a human i was 25 we flew on the prop plane with him everywhere I play golf with Tiger Woods. I mean, it was a thrilling career to work in in Republican politics and to help them communicate. But I always saw myself as sort of sitting at the entrance or the exit and helping them explain themselves to reporters because I'd studied journalism as an undergrad. I'd gone to the Medill School of Journalism. I'd worked briefly as a television reporter. I always saw myself as helping them communicate. And I didn't really get hung up in whether or not I agreed with everything they were doing, I was trying to help them. And I believed in the Bush family. I still believe in the Bush family. Right. And I think where I most closely and passionately defended them was probably after 9-11. And I worked very closely with, the, I had GWAT, that was my portfolio, Global War on Terror. And I worked very closely with the national security agencies and had all the clearances that you have to help a president articulate in their speeches and travels the nature of the threat we faced in the days and years after 9-11. So that was my White House work. It is now very polarizing. I get attacked on Twitter every day for my role in explaining and defending the Iraq war. But that was my time in government. That was what I did. And and I own it.
0: That was the end, right, of your time uh, working as a Republican in government. But it wasn't the end of your uh, time working in politics or working in the Republican Party. In 2008, of course, you worked on the McCain campaign when he ran for president and won the Republican nomination and then lost in the general election, obviously, to Barack Obama. One of the two times that McCain ran for president and became, for a period of time, the most popular politician in the country after uh, the 2000 race that he lost to your boss, George W. Bush. So, you know, you were tangled up with McCain in a whole bunch of different ways. And I, I saw just last week, I saw that Ken Burns is releasing a new documentary about Ernest Hemingway and in the promotions for the for the doc uh they released this interview with McCain and it had been a long time since I'd heard McCain's voice and I think a really long time since I heard McCain's voice talking about a topic that I'd never heard him speak about before because as you know I'm very familiar with a lot of John McCain's public utterances having written uh, a book partly about him and in this case it's McCain talking about his his deep deep love for his favorite Book of all time, which is a great book for sure. For whom the bell tolls, uh, by Hemingway, and uh, I love to listen to that clip, and then we'll talk about it, Nicole, you and I. Uh, but first, we got to take a little bit of a break, and then we'll come back and and kind of indulge in the luxury and the nostalgia of listening to John McCain uh, with our guest Nicole Wallace here on Helen High Water.
1: My hero is Robert Jordan. Robert Jordan is as real to me as you are. He was working as a professor in the University of Montana, but he heard about this struggle. He knew about fascism. He knew what Hitler and Mussolini were doing. And he decided to go and fight on behalf of people he had never met and he did not know. Even knowing that that cause was a flawed cause. But he was willing to fight And do whatever he thought he could for the cause of justice and freedom. I always wanted to be Robert Jordan.
0: We are back uh, here in the middle of part two of our special two-part episode of Hell and High Water with our guest and my friend Nicole Wallace. And that was uh, John McCain talking about his love uh, of the character Robert Jordan from Ernest Hemingway's For Whom the Bell Tolls. And you know, Nicole, I mean, as you know, I was not, never one to overly romanticize John McCain, though I respected him a lot. And I criticized him over the years for, for what I saw. And a lot of people, uh, when they were being honest, saw as his flaws. He had them. He knew he had them. But, you know, he hasn't been with us now for years. And, you know, when I hear McCain now, you can't help but miss him. And especially when you hear him, you know, talking about something like Robert Jordan. I mean, you think about the Republican Party today. What, what Republican politician could we name? who's even read For Whom the Bell Tolls, a lot of them probably don't even know who Hemingway is, let alone could have a an impassioned conversation about their love for Robert Jordan, you know, with that degree of eloquence and fervor. But we also know about John McCain, in addition to his eloquence and fervor, he also, like you, Nicole, uh, and me, um, had like one of the most profane potty mouths in the history of humanity. I've like, literally, I mean, John McCain, has, I mean, like, use the word fuck as a noun, a verb, an adjective, an adverb, every possible part of speech. And it made me think about a quote that I read from John Boehner's new book that's coming out, which is going to be delightful. And he talks about Ted Cruz, someone who McCain despised. And apparently Boehner also despised because this quote was amazing because I thought it's like Boehner channeling McCain. So here's the Boehner quote. There is nothing more dangerous than a reckless asshole who thinks he is smarter than everyone else. Ladies and gentlemen, meet Senator Ted Cruz. Now that is just a fucking great line. Who knew John Boehner had it in him? That's the kind of thing. Like I say, if McCain said it, you'd be like, well, that's just John McCain. (laughs) McCain obviously thought that about Ted Cruz every day that the two of them ever crossed paths. And, you know, like I said, Nicole, like we all know our viewers love that you are profane. And I think, you know, it was one of the most charming things about McCain was his profanity. (laughs) Uh, But but listening to that clip of McCain, uh, not profane, speaking about Hemingway, What does it make you think about? Um, I mean, you know, I can't help but think that you miss him uh, like so many people do. But it also is kind of poignant to hear McCain uh, and think about what would John McCain say and what would he think about his Republican Party as it currently stands?
1: Um, I think that McCain would be really sad. And we always depict McCain as if only McCain were here, he could stop it all. And I think that's I think that's unfair to McCain. I think we loved him because he saw what we saw, and he was so well-read. and And um, Mark Salter, in his beautiful book this year, told for the first time this story of our Hemingway um, night with John McCain. We were in, I think, Eau Claire, Wisconsin, but I might have the city wrong. And he read "Snows of Kilimanjaro" to me. Salter, maybe Rick Davis, um, maybe Steve Schmidt was there. There were about four of us with him. I think it was a point in the campaign where he knew he was gonna lose like he could read a poll better than, than any of us. And um and I think what McCain had was more than wisdom and more than reverence for knowledge and literature. It was understanding that you're so fucked when you try to make everything black and white. And McCain existed in all the gray spaces, all the uncomfortable, messy gray spaces. And and just to bring it all back to, to why it's so broken. Life isn't black and white for anyone. It's just not. That's not where life happens. Nobody's perfect. Everyone's flawed. Everyone makes mistakes. And McCain's power was that he didn't run away from everything that was gray and murky and not conveniently reflexively partisan. He didn't run away from places where there wasn't a right or a left benefit. And I think that sort of the the reverence for Hemingway and and the reverence for all that was sort of hard and a struggle was one of the most beautiful things about John McCain, that he sort of existed in this place where you could sort of feel pain and feel struggle and not try to hide it. We have this this epidemic of trying to hide all of our struggles and present all these shiny, happy faces. And I think McCain didn't do that. And that was where people that had struggled, and, and he never McCain never knew how to market McCain, and I think Salter would acknowledge that too. But the the <laughs> most beautiful things about McCain were that he he struggled with all of it. He didn't have reflexive, you know, clean partisan solutions. He, he thought the answers were were these sort of muddled compromises, the best of both sides. And and um, unfortunately, for a variety of reasons, they didn't catapult him to the presidency. But he it would have been a great thing to watch him govern in those gray spaces, which is where which is where politics sort of deviates from from it's why it feels so abstract to people. It sees black and white, right and left, spending, no spending, cutting taxes, raising. It's it's you know, most people in their lives are making far more nuanced gray decisions with with the ideal way out of reach.
0: I think that McCain really understood intuitively something that a lot of the most successful politicians that you and I have met over the years no which is that even though our politics are starkly polarized and everything is like painted in black and white the real lives of real people are mostly lived in gray and mm-hmm. you know the successful politicians understand that disjuncture and try to navigate it and and recognize that it's kind of one of the most fucked up things in our civic lives that like you know the government that represents the people is a lot more polarized and a lot more starkly divided and again paints everything in these kind of primary colors and and this black and white um, way when people's lives are not like that. And it kind of brings me back to an earlier conversation that we were having a little while ago, right, which mm-hmm. is, you know one of the black and white things now is this disjuncture between, you know, it's not really a Democratic or Republican party anymore. It's like, are you on team democracy or are you on team autocracy? And the Republican Party, you know, is increasingly like Team Autocracy. We talked about the fact before that you know you're not a Republican and you were never really a conservative in any kind of gut way, not like an ideological conservative. But as we think about the Republican Party, there are a bunch of never Trump Republicans out there, right, who think that their objective, their mission now, is to try to reform the Republican Party, right, is to bring it back to some more traditional, more consistent, more humane, more principled vision of what conservatism or republicanism used to be and that is you know Joe Scarborough our friend Joe Scarborough is kind of in that category right who still thinks of himself as a conservative wants to try to fix the Republican Party in yeah, that way
1: and, yeah like and and Michael Steele probably and Bill Crystal and, and yeah that's that's not me I mean I I was always sort of a militant moderate that could have ended up and served either party. So, yeah, that is not me. I, and right. I, I think Elizabeth Newman is maybe the the folks involved yep. in the Republican Integrity Project. I'll, yep. Yeah, I, I don't think you can rebuild something who at its foundation is rotten. I right. think it's like a money pit of a reno, you know, it's, right. like it's just, just bull, bulldoze it and start over. Yeah. But I think that debate will go on. Look, I, I think that might have been the disservice of all of Trump's, you know, blingy scandals. We didn't really address the rot at the core of the Republican Party. But it's a Republican Party that's going to oppose Joe Biden on a basis. Of, and I, I tried to sort of explain this to Stephen Colbert, but I think his his hatred for all things Bush made it a hard point to make. So I'll, I'll try to make it with you the Republican party in its modern incarnation is bullshit because they're now going to wage a war against the Biden administration based on principled issues. And I put that in quotes like spending. I didn't right. give a shit about spending when Trump right. was spending like a drunken sailor. Right. They're going right. to try to make principled arguments on cultural issues. Donald Trump is credibly accused of sexual misconduct by 19 women. There was no cultural taboo that Donald Trump didn't annihilate and they didn't give a shit. They couldn't say a word to a reporter and supporter, Jim Mattis, when he quit on principle over Syria policy, where literally American allies, the Kurds, were being slaughtered because Donald Trump. War- There's nothing they can say on Biden's foreign policy, on Biden's spending or on Biden cultural issues that they weren't rendered total hypocrites for during the four years yeah. of Trumpism. So the party is rotten to its core.
0: Yes. Well, you and I, obviously, as you know, we agree about this, and it's part of my the thing that I'm like a broken record on this notion of Trump as symptom, not as cause, and yeah. that the party who, only a ideologically and intellectually bankrupt party could be taken over by Donald Trump. They were already, already, right. that's right, all of that before he came along, and and now he's gone, and they're still intellectually and ideologically bankrupt. And so, I, I, I raised the question though, just because you're not invested then in the way that others are in, like, okay, what's the project now going forward? How do we how do we renovate this thing again? As you said, it should be a teardown, and the foundations are rotten. But I guess I asked the question then journalistically, or as someone who moved in those worlds. Do you see right now any movement for that kind of renovation as having traction? You sort of. I mean, there was a time when the Lincoln Project was supposed to be the vehicle for this, and obviously that's a whole other kettle of fish. But do you see any of that having traction? Do you look around and see any signs that there's? I mean, I think we would both agree that it would be better for the country to have two functional, legitimate, non-authoritarian, non-autocratic, non-racist parties in America. There are differences on policy that exist Mm -hmm. that it would be good for the country to debate. It would be Mm -hmm. good if someone could make an argument about you know, the role, the proper role of the free market versus the role of government, Mm -hmm. the proper role interventionism versus restraint abroad. Those are good arguments. And the country would benefit from having them made by two parties who had credibility on them. So do you see that? Rachel says, watch what
1: they do, not what they say. I think you have to look for a Republican that's going to oppose tax cuts and spending. I think the spending is the opportunity for a new I don't want to say opposition party because it suggests conflict. And look, here's the other part of the story. Joe Biden is hungry for a Republican party to push against so that he's not fighting within his own party, right? It benefits Joe Biden if there is a principled opposition party for him to sort of compromise with. That is how he has said he wants to govern. That's how John McCain would have wanted to govern if he'd ever prevailed. And so it's not just that it's good for the country. It's good for a Biden administration if some principled opposition emerges and says, I'm not for an infrastructure package that costs this much money, but I'm not for tax cuts either. The problem is that the current version of the Republican Party wants their stuff. They want to spend for their stuff. So none of it is principled. I think that if you leap forward to what the next presidential primary will be, there'll be buffoons like Pompeo, who's sort of a smart buffoon, right? He's like a smarter Trump. He's Harvard educated, which makes his lack of morality or or ethics even more disgraceful. But he's gonna be in a duel. And I'd put Rubio, he's not as smart as Pompeo, but he fashions himself that way. And then Ted Cruz is just a whole nother conversation. I think i will let Boehner be the last word on him, just like the the biggest asshole to ever sort of govern (laughs) under the banner of Republicans, loathed by everybody. I think Republicans hate Cruz more than Democrats do. because I think Democrats sort of look and they're like, why do they hate him so much? Wow, we hate him too. So you will have all those guys who want to sort of siphon off the toxic sludge from Trumpism and use it to their benefit. And then you'll you'll have this bucket of people. And, and I think Chris Christie tried to move out of that category after the insurrection, where he took off after Trump the night of the election and, and said to in all these conversations with George Stephanopoulos, which I went back and watched to try to figure out what, what's he doing, what's his play, because he's a guy with with national political ambitions. And I asked Christy on my show, you're trying to wash the Trump stink off yourself. There'll, there'll be people that are trying to do that and, and don't really deny it. They tried to help him while he was president. They supported the sacred Republican stuff, I guess, like judges and tax cuts. I don't know if they'll be successful, but it's it's better for the country. It's better for, for the Democrats. It's sort of that offshoot is more successful than the Pompeo Cruz Rubio offshoot, because at least they're trying to get back to something, you know, in the same atmosphere as principled opposition. But I just don't know if it can be successful because I'm guessing a lot of the energy around the sort of brainwashed base is around the Pompeo Cruz Rubio wing. But I could be wrong and it's really early. So we'll see.
0: It is a huge question about how the Republican Party is now going to, uh, what kind of configuration it's going to settle into and who's going to be in which camp and which who are going to people, as you as you say about Chris Christie, uh, who really is you know trying to wash the Trump stink off himself and others who are trying to do that versus the huge chunk of the party that's like, you know, I mean, as out front, like we got to stick with Trump. Trump's our only future. Who's going to be in which camp, and and whether that is a stink that washes out, like, or whether that stink is there permanently. Whether it's like you're not going to be able to get that particular stain out of your clothes. It's like out damn spot, no sorry, damn spot. Staying in, it'd be really interesting to see. Um, You know, one thing we have not talked about, and that we really need to talk about, another dark thing from last week. And I know, you know, you we talked off air about uh, what a brutal week of news it was last week. Uh, But we have not gotten yet to something I think obviously super important, not just in the narrow sense of the trial itself, but in terms of its implications for the country. And that's uh, the Derek Chauvin murder trial for what I will call the execution of George Floyd uh, on the street in Minneapolis a little less than a year ago. So uh, we're going to take a quick break and then we will come back and have a talk about that and try to bring this massive, sprawling, two-part, epic, super mega how kind of fragilistic uh, hell and high water with the Wallace we're gonna try to bring this thing in for a landing so stick around after the break we'll be back would you tell the ladies and gentlemen how your viewing experiencing what happened to George Floyd has affected your life when I look at George Floyd, I look at, I look at my dad. I look at my brothers. I look at my cousins, my uncles,
1: because they are all black. I have black, I have a black father. I have a black brother. I have black
0: friends. And I I look at that and I look at how that could have been one of them. It's been nights. I stayed up apologizing and and apologizing to George Floyd for not doing more and not physically
1: interacting and not saving his life. But it's like,
0: it's not what I should have done. It's what he should have done. So that's, uh, that's Darnella Frazier, uh, the teenager who videotaped. George Floyd's execution, I will call it, on, uh, on a public street in Minneapolis almost a year ago. Um, we're back with Nicole Wallace, and that, that was one of many uh, moments last week as the prosecution put on its case that were um, huh, moving, um, gut-wrenching, horrifying to hear all these people who all the guilt they're dealing with all of these these Mm -hmm. witnesses, these bystanders, these people who shouldn't have been their jobs who are there for no reason other than happenstance, who got to witness this horrifying thing in front of them in their city to this man and now have been grappling with it for a year. The the guilt that they feel wrongly, I would say they have no reason Mm -hmm. to feel guilty. The guilt, the anguish, all of that. You know, you came back, you taken a little time off, you came back to work last week and were like hit square in the forehead with the Chauvin trial, which I don't think you necessarily knew was Hadn't really like, kind I've of lost track of when it was going to start. Mm-hmm. Just tell me what it was like for you as you, I mean, you do your show every day. You're on television for two hours every day. You were going to talk about Chauvin and this trial and George Floyd at least once a day, every day for the last five days. And, and you talked about it obviously more than that. It was a big story this week. Mm-hmm. So just tell me, tell me how you, I mean, how, what that, what did watching that trial, what were your reactions to it? And, and well, what were your reactions to it?
1: I mean, Darnella, 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 right? Um, what a voice and what a soul and, I have, I have complicated feelings about it as a cable host. Um, I think trials are hard to understand sometimes. And so, I mean, just professionally, I wrestled with how much do you just sit in and how much do you kind of try to cover it and make sense of it with smart people, you know, like Ari Melber and, and people that can tell you what you're watching. And it took me all week to come to that balance. What's so amazing about watching the prosecution's case is there's, there's this, Twist of fate, right? That put all these people in one place who most of them had never met each other. Darnella, an off-duty EMT who was on her day off walking around and showed up and saw police harming George Floyd. Didn't know who George Floyd was, didn't know who the police were, didn't know the bystanders. That was sort of the early week testimony. You've got you've got all the bystander video. You, you, you children who knew this was wrong. People buying snacks in the store who knew this was wrong. An off-duty EMT who showed up on a walk, knew this was wrong. Paramedics who got there and um, testified that uh, this was wrong. Then then it just, it just grew. And you had the law enforcement supervisor to Derek Chauvin who said that um, someone handcuffed didn't need to be restrained with force because they were restrained with handcuffs. And then it sort of culminated in a more senior law enforcement official who said that this use of force was never appropriate for someone who was in handcuffs and incapacitated, which he clearly was. The problem's going to be, we're not, I'm not a lawyer. A lot of people watching aren't lawyers. It's a crushing and overwhelmingly and seemingly irrefutable human calculation that someone who was in handcuffs on his face, non-responsive and the, the um, off-duty EMT testified, look like there were body fluids that someone only that only exist when someone's life has, has been extinguished. Um, I think it'll be a really difficult question um, to be presented as a question, right? Seems irrefutable. And so I think it's it's just sort of back to where we started, these, these big questions that, that draw into um consideration whether or not the country's governable. When it looks like there are sort of two ways that police treat black Americans and white Americans, it's it's all part of that that big sort of, you know, um raft of problems that President Biden inherited that, that Donald Trump didn't create them all, but he certainly made them worse. And I think I don't think it's fair to say America's on trial, and I know that's the Rev's articulation. I think that's dangerous, Um, but this trial of Derek Chauvin, uh, I think has exposed a lot of pain in this country. It makes you look at something that's the daily reality for every Black American, and I think with the crush of evidence we saw this week, it makes it very difficult to comprehend an outcome other than accountability for Derek Chauvin.
0: Why do you think that saying America's on trial is, is dangerous? Well,
1: because I think that's that's not technically who the defendant is, right? Technically speak. And I think it's our job to be both technically and symbolically accurate and fair. You know, technically, this is and it's the murder trial of Derek Chauvin. That is, that is, that is what is happening. That's the case that's being presented. But I think what, what feels like is happening can't be denied. And what feels like is happening is this irrefutable case with eyewitnesses. Yeah. Uh, emergency responders and, and senior law enforcement officials saying that what he did was wrong. So I think it feels like this big question about what kind of country we live in, and it is. But I think it's this this careful balance to let the emotions sort of coexist with the facts. And, and the prosecution is prosecuting a case against one man, Derek Chauvin.
0: The killing of George Floyd was horrifying. And then there was the, the after effects, the aftershocks. I mean, it was obviously a, a trigger for for this massive racial justice reckoning moment that was not just in America, but around the world. And there were protests and there were riots and there were all kinds of things. And there have been changes, some policy changes and some policing, you know, people talking about various kinds of police reform and criminal justice reform. And there's been a lot of fallout from what happened to George Floyd. And so now we have the trial and it seems to be you know, kind of axiomatic that that regardless of what the outcome is, there's gonna be fallout from this. So I guess I ask you as you sit here watching this, put aside the question of, of the case that's being built and what the defense might look like. And I we have some ideas about that. Mm-hmm. What do you imagine will happen if this a hung jury mm-hmm. and there's not a guilty verdict, either a hung jury or or he's declared innocent? What do you imagine will happen in in that instance? What do you what are you braced for if either one of those outcomes? I say any outcome other than a conviction it happens to occur here.
1: Well, I mean, that's sort of back to where I started, right? I mean, I think that's where the media has to have some restraint and not putting the whole country on trial and, and really trying to balance the national and international emotion that the killing of George Floyd at the hands, literally at the hands and knees of Derek Chauvin evoked. There has to be some, I think, window into the fact that this is also a window into what may or may not still be functioning in our legal system. So that's a legal outcome that as someone who's covering it, I'm, I'm just, I'm afraid to get ahead of it. But I think we can all guess what the result will be if there's no accountability for something that the prosecution's case has put forth such a diversity of witnesses that had nothing else in common other than observing Derek Chauvin's brutal treatment and use of force against a handcuffed, medically distressed person. It, and those were, he was handcuffed by Chauvin, and he was described as, as medically distressed by Derek Chauvin. Those are his descriptions of George Floyd. So there's no accountability after his boss, his supervisor in law enforcement, that a chief, a senior at, at the police department says this was an inappropriate use of force, an off-duty EMT, and, and the paramedics who responded. I mean, I, I just don't know how you explain to the country, looking at all that evidence, and coming to any other conclusion, than Derek Chauvin must be held accountable. But I think we've all covered enough trials to know that that happens sometimes. And I'm, I'm very scared for that moment for the country. We have no idea how this is going to end. And again, we haven't seen all of the defense moves. We've seen the prosecution's case. But Chuck Rosenberg reminded me this week that the defense doesn't have to prove anything, all the burdens on the state and on the prosecution. So it, it's another really fraught moment.
0: As we sit here in April, you know, the the shadow, the dark shadow of twenty twenty still hangs over everything. And I've I've referred to this a couple of times today. You think about COVID, a 2020 phenomenon still shadowing us now. Mm-hmm. The insurrection, which was really a I think of this part of 2020 yeah. and, and and you know, still kind of hovering over us now. The George Floyd will be, you know, centrally remembered as part of the horror show of 2020, now kind of extending into 2021 and who knows what the implications of it will be. Uh, depending on how things turn out. And I, I you know, I would say even if, if he's found, even shown is found guilty, there are still profound questions that we're grappling with that, that that incident sparked. So it raises to me a large question, which is really what I want to spend the last part of our time together. Let talking me add, about. Let is, me
1: add one more thing. I mean, I think 2020 in the big light is still living on in all the voter suppression laws. 47 yes, states. Yes. Well, no, that's another hangover from 2020 and yes. the damage of Trump.
0: My God, yes, and it's a, a topic, you know, and and we I'm glad you raised it because of course you know we now Georgia its voter suppression law has has caused a lot of controversy. The controversy has inspired a bunch of companies to to take stances. Delta Airlines and others who are speaking out against the law, and now we have the baseball All Star game is being taken out of Atlanta. And I'm not I promise you I'm not just this is not just a our, our wandering rant. My point about all of it is like that's a perfect example. Like getting back to normal, you know. Opening day last week, baseball's back. We're getting back to normal. But the all-star game has to be moved from Atlanta, I think rightly, because of the Georgia Georgia voter suppression law, which is an aftershock of the big lie, which is part of the abnormality of 2020 that's still kind of shadowing us as we go forward. It's like even the things that should signal that we're getting back to normal, Nicole, like opening day is kind of, there's a dark cloud hovering over it of the aftershocks of 2020. Totally. And it's all my way of just trying to ask, like, are we ever going to get back to normal? <laughs> like, what, what is normal? Is there a normal? What the fuck is normal? Like, how do you think about this moment right now? My friend, as a human, you know, just like, what what is normal now? Have we lost track of it permanently? Are we getting it back there? What would it be like if we did? I don't know. I don't know exactly what I'm asking, except yeah. I feel like it's just this mm-hmm. large existential atmospheric thing that we're all sort of groping around and grappling with.
1: Yeah. Look, I mean, we can just take baseball. Like, what's more normal than baseball? Um, So the Nationals-Mets opening series was canceled because of COVID cases on one team, on the Nationals. I think Donald Trump, like, via horse messenger or however the hell he communicates these days since he's (laughs) deplatformed like sent a you know a a letter on a horse somewhere and call for a boycott of baseball
0: here's carrier carrier pigeon (laughs) and the trump carrier pigeons take particularly large shits all over (laughs) over us that's like how it works the pigeon flies by and takes a a dump on your shoulder
1: yeah yeah and he's still doing that to the country um here's my my attempt at, at a response i don't have an answer um companies like the georgia companies hire aggressively from white houses you know this Jay carney works at amazon robert gibbs worked for a company all the you know joel Kaplan went to work for i mean all the smartest people in a white house go to work for the biggest and best companies sure all these companies knew exactly what was in the georgia law way before they came out with statements saying we oppose the georgia law dell and American Airlines and Southwest, all the Texas companies, which is the next state looking at voter suppression laws, they knew exactly what was in it because of smart people who used to analyze laws for presidents and senior congressional leaders. Every company in America knows exactly what is in the voter suppression laws, which is what they are. And the New York Times had a great fact check on what is actually in the Georgia law. The scariest thing about the Georgia voter suppression law isn't actually banning water. The scariest thing. Is taking power away from the state's secretary of state, which in 2020 was Brad Raffensperger, who was a lifelong Republican who voted for Trump. You go back to all the days when you and I were on the air between the November election and um, not just the insurrection, but the eventual inauguration of Joe Biden. And what the Republicans are trying to do is change what would have happened in that period we talked about all these you know, brave, nameless, and Gabe Sterling of Georgia went out and said, someone's gonna get shot because the people under threat now are the local election officials who are walking the line, just doing their job. What the Georgia law, according to the New York Times does, is takes away power from people like that and gives it back to Republican controlled legislatures who are writing the voter suppression laws. I think this is a four alarm fire i think democrats need to fight like republicans go to the mattresses put everything on the line and i think this is where democrats and i say this with respect and admiration and recognition that democrats are the only functioning party in the country right now they can't blink because boycotts are uncomfortable and unpopular and painful they need to take this fight all the way because if they don't republicans will change the laws the only laws that made Joe Biden's inauguration after his decisive victory possible. The the scariest thing in the Georgia law is not the thing we're all covering. It's not the bullshit about water being handed out. Right. It's not the bullshit about drop boxes. You know, at the right. end of the day you can go find another place to vote. But you cannot change. You cannot change the laws about who administers elections. That is the only reason Joe Biden was inaugurated after winning. And you look at all the calls Donald Trump was making, he was calling the kind of people that the Georgia law seeks to disempower. And yep. if you put the power back in Republican-controlled legislatures, which is where Republicans have a, a shocking and overwhelming, and, Donald and, Trump, and
0: you, you can't- Donald Trump's, pres- Donald Trump's president. Donald Trump's president today. Yes. So getting, back, think, getting
1: back to normal depends on the yeah. fate of these voter suppression laws, which we spend a ton of time on. They're not sexy. They're hard to understand. The Times did the best story about what's actually in the Georgia law. But 47 states are looking at these laws. Every American company lives in one of those 47 states. And I think the next front in our politics has nothing to do with the two parties. It has everything to do with sports and corporate America, understanding that if you want to sell your shit to Americans, you can't make it harder for them to vote.
0: Oh, God, I totally agree with you. And, I, and the other point I totally agree with, and I'll say, you know, going back to a little shared moment of our history, right, which is the 2000 recount, I remember so clearly when it happened. For anybody who doesn't know this story, you should go watch the, the movie recount that our friends J. Reg and Danny Strong, Strong made for HBO. Yeah. That was the movie that two of them made it before they made Game Change.
1: Right.
0: Um, and the, one of the stars of that movie is a character by the name of Ron Klain. And and Ron Klain played by Kevin Spacey, uh, unfortunately. Uh, I know the current circumstances, but it's, it's a very good movie. Um, it's a really good movie. And it captures in the way I think the game change did, a lot of powerful truths about what happened. And one of the things about that moment, I think if you talk to Ron, now the White House Chief of Staff, about this, we all had a sense that once you went into the recount battle, that Republicans were going to win. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think everybody did. Mm-hmm. And part of the reason was because we knew that James Baker and Ben Ginsburg and the people on your side at the time were, Ruthless, and I'm I'm just going to say it. Just I mean, I, I say it with some admiration, right? And it I relates directly to what we're talking about right now. Was that they were ruthless, and that they understood that what this was about was not about legal niceties, but about power. And they were going to do what they needed to do to win that fucking election. And they didn't give a shit how it looked. They didn't give a shit if they got shit for it. They didn't care if they were criticized. They were like the fucking presidency's on the line, and we're going to do what we need to do to win this fucking recount. And in the end, it ended up being the Supreme Court that gave it to George W. Bush. Whatever, you know. I mean, Al Gore won the popular vote. Should You know, if you believe what I believe, which is that the person with the most vote should be president. You know, again, a no diss to George W. Bush, but the reality is, George, nobody even contests that point. Al Gore won the popular vote in America. Right. But my point is that Ron, I think, and all of those Democrats who fought down there, You get in these discussions with them at the time that was like, they talk about the rule of law, and they talk about the importance of institutions, they talked about that stuff and it was like admirable. It was like the kind of way Democrats always talked about stuff. They cared about all that stuff and it it was admirable, but you knew that it was a disadvantage and a weakness in that fight and Mm -hmm. that that fight, the stakes of that fight were so great that being, you know, ruthless and, and willing to wield the the blackjack and the pipe and the, you know, whatever weapon came to hand to win, that that other side was going to win. Forget about what you thought about that and what your normative judgment of it was. Who had the advantage in that fight? Republicans had the advantage because they were more ruthless. And I I think that that is a thing that, you know, if, you, if you're Ron Klain, Ron Klain learned a lot of lessons from that fight. I'll tell you, mm-hmm. I know that. But I think Democrats in general, it's your point you're making, which is, Man, this is the whole fucking ball game here, guys. That's right. And I'm and I'm not counseling doing things that are unethical, and I'm not saying you should go and be immoral, and I'm not saying that you shouldn't be different from Republicans because you should. I mean, it's, you know, you don't want to just become like your adversaries and and sell your soul in the process, but recognize what the stakes here are and that you should be willing to endure a lot of pain. Correct. In order to win when your cause is righteous.
1: Correct. That's right. And you look at where this is already heading and you've got, you know, Republicans branding this as cancel culture, that baseball canceled Georgia. You've got Kemp, who was annihilated by Trump. Trump doesn't give a shit about Kemp, but Kemp's scared of Trump's voters. So he's, you know, folding. They all know that this law is based on a lie. So it's the Texas law. All 47 states are looking at laws that are based on a lie. Right. and. Democrats care about workers, they care about jobs. Republicans pretend like they do, but they really don't. Their political power takes precedent over it. I can just see it coming. They're getting they're getting squeamish some of them. they're they're uncomfortable with losing the baseball game for one. But I, I think the real question now is where does the baseball game go? Can't go to Texas. They're looking at a law just like this. Where does it go? Because 47 states are looking at these laws. And again, back to what I said, every company, every one of these companies has former White House and congressional staffers running their government affairs, lobbying, and communications departments. They all know what's in the laws. All of them. They all know what's in the laws. They all put out statements. I mean, I got statements from, you know, you couldn't buy laundry detergent after George Floyd was killed without knowing where your laundry detergent manufacturer stood on the racial reckoning. Where are all those companies on voter suppression laws? Because that is what they are. Republicans will not stop until they've made it impossible. And, and there's a racial element, obviously. There's also young voters. I mean, making it hard for college kids sure. to vote—that—that sure. that is another effect. So the whole coalition that Democrats reassembled this year: young voters, black voters, older voters, not voters who vote in the midterms. In the, I mean. They're seeking to deprive Democrats of their voters. And if they don't, again, if they don't treat this like the four-alarm fire that it is, they will be disadvantaged forever.
0: Yes. And just to make your point very clear, why is it based on a lie? It's based on a lie because the premise of all of these things is people have lost confidence in the integrity of our voting system. That is what Kemps, that's what they all say. Right. People have lost confidence. And because they've lost confidence, we need to do things to restore that confidence in this voting system. Well, why have they lost confidence? They've lost confidence because of this big, fat fucking lie right. that Donald Trump and his party told. There's no reason for anybody to have lost confidence. Correct. The fucking election. The election was, was conducting a fully... Uh, in a way with complete integrity, in which there was no voter fraud. So to the extent that people have lost confidence in it, it's because they've been lied to. It's not because there's some reason for that they have lost confidence.
1: It's the opposite. I mean, Chris Krebs, who was the lifelong Republican in charge of election security, said it was, quote, the most secure election in U.S. history. Bill Barr, who was so happy to go out with a flashlight as like Inspector Clouseau himself looking for voter fraud, if it existed, couldn't find any. Rudy Giuliani, who was in dozens of courtrooms, couldn't present any. There was no systematic or widespread voter fraud. There wasn't any.
0: Yes, it's a the it's opposite
1: a big, is true. It's like Seinfeld is is they're yes. arguing the opposite of what happened.
0: So let me come back to normalcy, and then I, I want to <laughs> like, let you, I want to let you leave because I've kept you here for too long. Although I could again, I could probably talk to you for like six hours if we both had the time. We just sit here and just chat all day long. <laughs> I, I, but I do want to come back to normalcy in this question of you know just at at the kind of human scale, you know, I don't think any of us really know what normal looks like on the other side of this. I really don't. In the same way as the pandemic fundamentally transformed so much about how, you know, you think about how like the world evolves, like from why do people go to offices? Why do they work together? You know, mm-hmm. the whole giant, complex, economic, cultural, geographic of evolution of modern industrial economies that led to a system, which was not inevitable, that people would get up and go to work at eight or nine o'clock in the morning and then sit in an office with their office mates, you know, I mean not all workers, but many workers yeah. all day long. And then at five or six o'clock they would go home. Like, how did that happen? You know, it's a series of decisions and choices and economic and technological progress at all, but whatever. Now it's all been blown out of the fucking yeah. water, right? Yeah. All about hey, wait up. Like it's it's made clear the contingency. Uh, of that system, that that's not in some inevitable way of being. That's just mm-hmm. a bunch of choices, accreted choices over time, right? So we don't know what normal looks like. We don't know what work's going to look like. We don't know what play is going to look like. We don't know how long it's going to take. We know that there are some core things like people want to be together.
1: Mm-hmm. People
0: want to go to 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 public things and be in each other's midst again. That is a powerful human thing. Mm-hmm. We want to go watch sports. We want to listen to music. We want to convene together in physical proximity, that will come back. I have no doubt. But I ask you, as you've gone through this year, you know, what have you missed? Like when you say to yourself, God, I can't wait till this is over till this is over and we get back to normal. I'm doing air quotes here. You know, what is it that that means to you? What do you think to yourself? This is what I most want back. This is what I most miss. This is what I most am looking forward to reclaiming when whatever this is, is over and we get back to normal, whatever normal is.
1: I miss the absence of fear. So I, I want to not be scared, sending my little boy to school. I don't want to worry that he's going to be one of the few. It's really hard to get COVID in schools that it can put in place all the safety measures. But I, I miss not feeling scared. And um, I think we're really adaptable and I find that there's a lot that I like about hunkering down with my modern family, but I miss not being terrified all the time. I'm scared all the time that my kid will get sick, that my kid will, um, something will happen to him from not seeing his friends all day, every day, that I'm such a subpar educator from in-person teachers that... He'll never learn fucking new math, which is mind-boggling. You have no idea what new math is. Still, you've tried. It's like not about the answer. So Siri is useless. You have to like show your work. It's it's like you and I are not made for new math. So
0: Can I be clear? Can I be clear? Yeah. I, I didn't understand old math, so there's no <laughs> way I'm ever gonna understand new <laughs> Can math. I could barely, I could, I could barely, yeah, I could barely. Yeah. Yeah. I, I got times tables, I'm yeah. okay with, but like take me and even to algebra, uh, I'm fucked.
1: Yeah. yeah. So I, I miss not being scared all the time, and I think. I think you're right. Like I, I think the workplace has been scrambled and just as as someone with like a team that's performed so brilliantly during the pandemic, I wouldn't have a prescription about post-COVID working. Like if there are people on my team that are happy working from home with their dog under their feet, they've performed so brilliantly and you know my team, I would never make make them come back. So
0: they have they have been brilliant. Your team My God, the Deadline White House team is so good, so professional, so loving. So just magical. You guys, you put together, it it speaks. It speaks a lot to the quality of their boss, too, because the truth is there are no good teams with bad bosses. So, um, you know, so
1: brilliant. I mean, you know them all because you've anchored the show, too. So like just as a manager, I I wouldn't make them all. I mean, I miss them all. But if some of them wanted to come back in um, and some of them wanted to stay at home, I, I would never have like a return to the office deadline ever because some of them may prefer it this way and their product is so stellar that I I would not have this sort of paradigm that that only happens in person because clearly that's not the case. I mean, I got a second hour in the middle of the pandemic and so they're half of my team I've never met in person. I only know them from calls. So Amazing. so like the in-person piece in the workplace, I mean, like I like going into the studio. I've mostly been in the studio in 2021 in, in New York and I've come in and out all year there's just something about being in a set that for me is easier for me to focus than being in my basement hearing the violin (laughs) lesson and the dog and the UPS guy and my chickens, you know, my rooster cockadoos, and it's a blessing to do it at home. But, but for me, it's slightly better to be in person. So when it's safe and they, they ask us to come back, you know, I'll raise my hand. But I miss the absence of fear. Like I had that reunion with my parents and my son and the grandparent reunion is everything it's chalked up to be. But I've been, you know, fear in my throat about whether, you know, the, the travel got, got my son sick or got someone sick. So i most miss and I'm most traumatized by a year in terror.
0: Well, I hope for the sake of all of us, I think that you're not alone. I think it's a very, a very pointed and perceptive way of putting it. And it's, you know, maybe that is really one of the functional definitions of the return to normalcy, which will be the, the gradual, it won't happen overnight, but the gradual abeyance of a state of constant fear that a lot of people have lived in for sure for the course of the last year i gotta say i'm gonna i'm a simple man i miss a fucking hot dog and a <laughs> beer at a ball game you know like yeah i mean, I, I you know i mean I, i'm not being i'm not being too. i'm yeah. not being i'm not i'm not being i'm not trying to be facetious i mean yeah. i agree with everything you just said and there are profound things I, there are others the one could talk about but right now as i stare out the window here and i look at you know it's still pretty cold here in april but um Man, uh, there are very few simple pleasures for me. More than like you know, sitting in a ball game. I like not just the ball game, but a sellout. You know, like yeah. with a with a big crowd at at Fenway Park yeah. or at Dodger Stadium, you know, and, and just everybody there with a Dodger dog and a and a big giant beer, and, and like you know, surrounded by people, like yeah. and feeling and, and not feeling fear. And that I, I think though, my little things go alongside with your big thing. Um, that's like how it works around here. Nicole says the big, brilliant stuff. And I make the dumb little jokes that people no, go, oh, no. Heilman, I, I, oh, Heilman.
1: I, <laughs> <laughs> I, miss, I miss the crowded. I mean, I I have taken my son, not to opening day, but opening weekend, you know, the last three years before COVID. We were on our way to spring training last year when the COVID shutdowns hit. And so, yeah, I re, and, and it looks like a lot of. Teams are putting together safe ways to go to baseball games. we not crowded baseball games um, yet. So soon, maybe.
0: Darling, thank you. Thank you for taking so much time. Of
1: course. Thank you, my friend. Mwah. Love you.
0: Helen Highwater High Water is a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. Thanks again to Nicole Wallace, my dear friend, for being with us for a second time in two parts. If you like this episode, either part one or part two or both. Parts, please subscribe to Helen Highwater and share us, rate us, and review us on the Apple Podcast app or whatever app you happen to use to bask in the splendor of the podcast universe. I am your host and the executive editor of The Recount, John Heilman. Grace Weinstein is a co creator of Helen Highwater. Aaliyah Jackson and David Wilson engineered the podcast. Justin Chermel and Diana Roten handled the research. Stephanie Stender is our post producer, and Christian Fidel Castro russell is our executive producer.